Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dan White to the show. Dan White began working in agriculture in high school at a family orchard outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. After completing his BA at Dixon College in philosophy and political science, he moved to Italy, where he did international business development work for Italian artisans, igniting his passion for business and sales. Prior to clean crop, he spent more than a decade working around the world in agricultural development and consulting. He has focused his career on finding novel technologies with the potential to sustainably grow more food with less resources and bring them to market. Dan, how are you doing today? Doing great, Raj. Thanks for having me. Dan, thank you for joining us. Dan, I'd like to kick it off with this question. What are, and I might mispronounce this, but I'm going to give my shot. What are aflatoxins and should we as consumers be concerned about them? Yeah, great question. Um, so so aflatoxins are, are a, what's called a, a mycotoxin. So that's a, a toxin that's generated by a fungus. Um, and uh, they're a, a big problem for uh, a lot of dry food supply chains around the world. So think about grains, uh, things like nuts. Um, around 40% of the world's uh, nuts and grains are at risk of some sort of mycotoxin contamination uh, in any given year. And that's mostly dependent on you know how much rainfall, was there a drought, when did the drought happen? Um, and all of that drives you know the extent to which there's mold that'll grow on those products. And Sometimes that mold, if it's a really bad year for that mold, will uh, generate aflatoxins. So it's particularly a problem for um, for nut crops. So peanuts in particular have a big issue because obviously they grow underground, um, and uh, and then also a number of others. So almonds, um, uh, corn crops, wheat um, can have a range of different mycotoxins. And what's particularly bad about them? They're a very potent liver. They drive a lot of liver cancer. Um, they're a carcinogen. Um, around one in four cases of liver cancer are due to mycotoxin contamination um, or to aflatoxin specifically. Um, and once they get on a product, there's not really any good way today to remove it without really damaging that, that, that food in the process. So they're also a very uh, potent trade barrier. So, you know, developed markets like the U.S. have very strict limits on aflatoxin. So if you end up with a, with a lot of product that has high levels, there's very little you can do with it uh, that uh, allows you to keep it in that human supply chain. Um, in those high value markets at this point. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the harvest, let's say peanuts, for example, are tested for aflatoxins before they go into production, let's say for peanut butter? Yep. So here in the US, we have a very strict uh, monitoring program, USDA manages. So every peanut that gets harvested and cleaned uh, gets, you know, those lots get tested for aflatoxin uh, before they go on to the folks that make our peanut butter. Um, and so 
what this means is that the U.S. peanut shelling industry uh, loses quite a lot of money every year to to aflatoxins. Some years are better than others. This past season happened to be like a historically great year. Uh, there was very little incidence of aflatoxin. Uh, but 2019 was the opposite. I think something close to 40% of total U.S. production failed uh, the aflatoxin limits. Um, and uh, that has a lot of knock-on effects for the industry, too, because it uh, it means that exports to Europe get rejected at higher rates. It puts the U.S. origin on a kind of a blacklist. So you have more stock that then gets tested more frequently, which means you find more stuff that fails. It becomes a self-fulfilling crisis that uh, drives a lot of lost market share. So it's a big issue for the industry. And did I hear you correctly? You're saying the cause of this aflatoxin could be based on rainfall, droughts, etc.? Yeah, so it's a it's a complicated arrangement, but you can just think about it as, you know, there there the there's a fungus, Aspergillus flavus, is one of the more common strains of mold that that that, that generate aflatoxin. Um, it, it's in a field. If it has a very uh, wet part of the early season, it can then contaminate the the nuts. Um, and then that's that in of itself is is not necessarily a big problem, but but it can be a big problem if there's uh, really extensive drought conditions uh, closer to harvest because that drought will stress out that mold, triggering it to generate the toxins. Um, and so at a macro level, what we're seeing with climate change, um, there's been a number of studies. One that recently came out from Australia, uh, looking at you know, trying to model these changes in rainfall patterns and, and climate conditions. And they anticipate that you're going to have a, a real expansion of the geographies that experience aflatoxin uh, damage and risk, um, and that it's going to happen more frequently. So you're going to have you know more more incidents in any given decade of of, of seasons that have very high uh, high pressure, both mold and and toxin pressure. So it's it's an issue that we only expect to get worse in the the next few decades. And can these aflatoxins cross contaminate different products? Um, so yeah, one of the pernicious issues is once, if you have a, you know, let's say you harvest a field and 95% of it didn't have any aflatoxin pressure. If you had mold in that one back corner, all of that product gets put in, in farmer storage together, it can actually cross and sort of continue to, to, to propagate in that storage, um, across the rest of that product. And so you do have a lot of cross-contamination risk, um, which is why at the end of the day, we, we set out to try to find a technology that could be a supply chain solution to that. So speaking of the technology, can you give the audience an overview of Clean Crop Tech and your role at the organization? Yeah, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Clean Crop. Um, we're an ag tech startup uh, based in Western Massachusetts. Um, and we have a proprietary technology stack that uses electricity to, uh, to have a lot of different effects across the supply chain. So we use it to boost yields by treating seeds. Uh, we use it to generate these ionized gases that are highly excited um, that you can use to reduce waste and improve safety. And the way we do that is we basically have a machine that creates a, for in a very simplified explanation, we, we create a, an electron waterfall between two electrodes. And then we push gases, mostly air, um, but we can push other gases through that waterfall where it picks up those electrons they get excited, and then you can use those excited gas species to do different things. So you can deploy them to food surfaces where they can break down contaminants. And this is pretty broad spectrum. So we can knock down things like salmonella, listeria, um, E. coli, um, but also those contaminants that just drive short shelf life. So the brown mold that you know makes your lettuce go bad in the fridge, the white mold on berries, 
uh, those yeasts that make um, meat and seafoods start to smell bad. We can reduce those populations by, um, you know, 99% plus, unlocking additional days of freshness and safety. Which crops are most susceptible to this mold? Um, so, you know, the technology has a very broad uh, application space, so it's not just uh, targeting aflatoxin. Um, but that was kind of the first use case that we that we that we focused on because it was one that um, you know my co-founding partner and I's previous careers we knew pretty well because we had worked in these these nut supply chains and it sort of presented this compelling case of something that did not have a an existing solution set had a very clear quantified cost to the customer like they know how much it costs every time a lot of peanuts fails um, that aflatoxin test. Um, and has this big regulatory structure that kind of forces them to, to either pay that cost or to find a solution. So it was a perfect storm of a sort of market structure that had a technology gap in it that, that we wanted to capitalize on. Um, and so that's where we focus first. But uh, over the last two years, we've, we've expanded the R&D applications and, you know, building on academic literature have shown that we can, you know, have similar decontamination effects on a wide range of other issues that crop up in other parts of of the supply chain. So, you know, we've looked at um, using surrogates, being able to knock down, um, uh, you know, pathogens like salmonella. So we can, you know, we can achieve reductions in, in, in those rates. And that's a pervasive issue for obviously a wide range of products, um, uh, as well as uh, things like E. coli and listeria. Um, and, uh, and like I said, those other molds that, uh, that sometimes can make you sick or other times just, just make you throw your food away um, uh, earlier than you'd have to otherwise. Now, where in the farm-to-table process does your application apply? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's kind of different uh, depending on which which supply chain we're working on. But basically, our, our hardware is um, can can retrofit into almost any part of the supply chain where uh, where it has access to the food in kind of a loose, bulked format, right? So that we we need to basically it, it just the only condition is that whatever food product we're treating, it can't already be in a bag or a tote or a or a bin. It needs to be going through processing. So within the nut supply chain, um, our machines sit in the peanut shelling facility. Um, that's where, you know, raw uh, in-shell peanuts come in from farmers. They get uh, shelled, cleaned, sorted, and then they get bagged as raw peanuts, raw shelled nuts that go on to the people who make the CPGs that make all of our peanut butter and candy bars. And so our machine retrofits into that processing line uh, and basically treats those nuts before they go into the bagger. Um, and we have, we're, we've been identifying, we're kind of in the process of identifying similar entry points for the other, uh, for the other verticals that we work in as well. So does your machinery actually sit on the farm? It's a, it's mostly a post-harvest, uh, sort of a supply chain solution. So it'll be post-harvest, post-farm gate, somewhere at that processing phase. Um, and that's equally true for both the, uh, for both the food applications as well as our seed treatment, uh, vertical. And how did you come up with the idea? Um, yeah, I mean, my, my, my co-founding partner and I, we're not scientists, um, we're not engineers. We, um, we squarely come from the, the market side of agriculture, um, I started my career, I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania in a town called Gettysburg, big apple growing country, and uh, started working in high school at a, at a, a family orchard, kind of fell in love with agriculture at that point, um, but wanted to, wanted to get out and see the world. And um, I ended up uh, moving and living in Europe for a while where I kind of got into business, not on the agriculture side, but, but looking at, um, I worked for a little bit at the Chamber of Commerce in Florence in Italy, where I helped 
sort of those small mom and pop artisans, if you've ever been there, who make, you know, like crafts work and fashion, um, help them try to find international buyers and structure contracts. And really, at that point, realized that I, I really enjoyed this business side of what I was doing. I didn't care as much about, you know, $20,000 handbags. Um, and I was missing the agriculture <laughs> stuff, but I wanted to, I wanted to kind of, uh, I still wanted to travel the world, but wanted to keep working in agriculture. And so basically after that experience, I uh, started working initially in sort of agricultural development work. So doing a lot of work for um, NGOs and, and companies that were implementing projects for the Gates Foundation and USAID uh, in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and then did some consulting work over the years as well with uh, companies that were trying to develop market share for biological inputs uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where um, you know it seemed like there was an opportunity to head off some of the mistakes made in the the green revolution um, if you could get you know health safer healthier products that could do the same thing into the market uh, before you had mass adoption of fertilizer at the same same levels as you had in the, the US and Europe um, and it was about eight years ago I met my partner uh, Dan Kavanaugh who at the time was uh, uh, working for an ADM subsidiary on some some peanut processing in Mozambique um, eventually worked for Cargill um, and he and I just partnered on projects over the years. And, um, you know, when you're working at that supply chain side, and this is true almost anywhere in the world, you're, you're really playing this really fast game of Tetris where you're, 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 your customer specs are always changing. Uh, market requirements are getting stricter. You know, if you're exporting stuff to, to the EU, it seems like every 12 months, there's a longer and longer list of, of, of chemicals and other issues, other things that you can't use um, on that product. Um, and you're trying to match those 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 buy side specs or sell side specs with with a buy side that that's coming in from the farmer. So, you know, every season's different. You have different contaminants, different pest issues. You'll have gluts and you'll have shortages. And so you're just trying to kind of fit these things together, like the twenty lots you get from this grower with this with this order from this uh, from this buyer, and eke out a little bit of a margin on top. And that's just kind of how most supply chains operate. And that's kind of the way they're supposed to if it's a very efficient system. Um, but we developed this thesis that, you know, one of the challenges you have is that by the time these products get contaminated with these toxins and pathogens and pests um, that drive a lot of this short shelf life or drive a lot of these food safety issues, they're, once they're in, once they get to your warehouse, there's very little you can do about it. And so we developed this thesis that, you know, if you could find a technology that could reliably uh, and broadly turn back the clock on those contaminants, you could really unlock a pretty transformative amount of value across these supply chains. And uh, so we spent like a year uh, trying to kind of find that technology. So we just read a lot of papers, talked to researchers, people who were selling stuff. And initially, we were just looking for something that we could go out and, and buy and then commercialize it in these markets where we saw an application. And eventually met uh, Dr. Kevin Keener, who is the inventor on our core tech um, He's a leader in, in these plasma applications for food safety in particular. Um, we're impressed with some of his papers, built some foundational prototypes uh, based, based on some schematics, and they worked. Um, and uh, so we went out, met with him, uh, were impressed with, with his work, and uh, started Clean Crop to basically take innovations from, from what he was doing and scale them up uh, into services across the market. And there were really kind of two things that, that that drew us to this technology over some of the others that we looked at, things like UV light or um, or high pressure pasteurization, this kind of broad category of what's, what's sort of called non-thermal pasteurization technologies. And, uh, you know, 
all of the papers that are written about this stuff, you know, show really impressive results, but it's always on, you know, 10 grams, 50 grams, 100 grams. It's all sort of petri dish scale. And as operators, our key focus was we really want to find a technology that when you crunch the numbers, even if it's not there today, seems to have some sort of line of sight on being able to replicate these results on one ton, 10 tons, 50 tons, 100 tons an hour for some of these these supply chains. Um, And his technology seemed to have the clearest line of sight to doing that. The operational costs seemed to be closest to favorable unit economics. Um, And it just had this broad spectrum application. We knew that even though we were focused on this aflatoxin problem to begin with, that that there was a lot of opportunities for us to, to either pivot if we had to, or to scale horizontally into other verticals with basically the same core technology stack. And that was really compelling. Dan, from being on the apple orchards and making hard cider to here at Clean Crop Tech and the journey you just described to us, it seems like there was a lot of time, effort, commitment on your behalf. What was your why? What continued to drive you? I mean, initially it was, it was, it was just a quality of life thing. Like I've, you know, I grew up in a pretty rural place and, uh, and, and I've lived in cities for a lot of my life, but I've, I've always been drawn to, to, to rural areas. Um, and so initially it was really just, that was where I found the most meaning and fulfillment was, was working outside. Um, but you know, the longer you work in these, in, in, in agricultural supply chains and particularly in emerging markets, uh, you know, one benefit I had from bouncing around these different projects and consulting assignments over the years was I really got a kind of a bird's eye view across the state of our food system in uh, around the world. And it, and it is at a macro level, really alarming. And, um, and so I think what, what I've really tried to focus on in my career is, is in the context of this macro problem, um, there is no one size fits all solution. Uh, that you can have, you know, I think it's totally true that 30% of food is wasted, you know, across supply chains, across countries. But when you really dig into the data, um, the what gets wasted is totally different in emerging markets versus developed markets. Um, the reasons why that waste happens um, are very complicated and very hard to, to, to peel apart. And, and so, you know, I think there's a macro market failure that we are staring in the face of, which is that most of that trillion dollars, give or take, of, of waste, it exists because right now nobody's actually holding it on their balance sheet, that, that, that a lot of that waste is externalized um, to consumers or it's externalized through um, other write-off mechanisms. And the, the challenge is we have technologies that, that could really reduce that total number, but the biggest barrier to their adoption is figuring out where is that sort of solving that puzzle of where in the supply chain does this technology need to in, need to insert to be able to really move the dial on reducing that key driver of waste and does that match up with who's going to pay for that and it's that intersection of the sort of technological capability and the technology constraints and what is sort of scientifically possible with the with the business context and trying to trying to find that overlap where those two those two things match up is really what kind of gets me out of bed in the morning is that that this is this interplay between between you know business and science within the context of agriculture that's trying to push towards towards bending the curve on what is i think a, a structurally under undervalued part of the story when it comes to us making sure we can keep feeding people through the rest of this century and beyond now you mentioned trillion dollars of food waste state of our food system. 
came across a quote in an interview you gave in 2020. And this is what it says. I'll read directly. By the time you throw away that tomato in your fridge, it has already led to significant emissions. Can you give an example of what those emissions might be? Yeah, that, that a lot of food is has a lot of uh, embedded emissions, you know, is one way you can think of it, that the fertilizer that went into that tomato, the 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 cold storage that it had to sit in both both from the truck to the uh, to the packing shed to the to the uh, to the grocery store you know there's a lot of energy that was that was embedded into that, that tomato um, that at the end of the day it goes unrealized if once you throw it away and so there's sort of two sides to this which is which is one trying to figure out how do we you know how do we reduce the sort of embedded uh, emissions per calorie that we produce at the front end. So how do we grow more efficiently? How do we use less resources? Um, you know, how do we shorten that, those sort of food miles, you know, from the, from the farm to the consumer to, to reduce some of those embedded emissions. But it's also about just making sure that, you know, that we're, we're, we're getting as many calories out of the emissions that are there. So once those emissions are embedded, you know, reducing the amount of, of things that we throw away is another way of, of bending that curve. Now, I'm not going to hold you to an exact number, obviously, different, um, a lot of different forces at play. But let's go back to the tomato, for example. Once the tomato goes through your process at Clean Crop Tech, how much longer might it last in the fridge? Yeah, so, so just, just as a disclaimer, you know, it's a product that's in R&D, not, not something that we've, we've, we've developed a, a solid number around. But in, in general, what we found for, for, for food is we, you know, we're able to extend, and it depends on the driver. There's different things that drive shelf life. But, um, but in general, we're able to add anywhere from days to weeks of additional shelf life, uh, which for, for products, you know, often translates into, you know, a 10 to 25% increase in their total shelf life from, from the farm gate to that, to that end consumer. Um, so most foods have, or most industries have kind of an, a, a standard benchmark of, you know, from what, if it's meat, it's like from, from slaughter date to, to when you need to consume it, you've got, you know, 21 days for ground beef for, um, for, for a lot of produce, you know, it's, it's much longer, but there's still a, a general range that you're trying to target. Um, and by and large, we're able to stack an additional 25, 10 to 25% uh, of shelf life onto whatever that baseline is. That really is amazing. Now, you mentioned meat. If I understand correctly, you are also able to treat meat with your product. Yeah, we're, we're working on, on sort of protein shelf life extension. There's a couple different uh, applications in that space that we're, uh, that we're, that, that we're pursuing uh, with, in collaboration with some key partners. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and in that, in that context, most, you know, there's, there's different things that drive shelf life on meat. I mean, one of the interesting things that I've learned or surprising things in that context is that, you know, there's this whole kind of stack of, uh, bacterias and yeasts that, you know, many of which are, you know, are, are, are just kind of there as like a proxy for, for that, that meat going bad. So the things that actually, you know, make those sort of off smells for, uh, for chicken or beef or, or seafood themselves are not actually dangerous, but they're, but we've developed this evolutionary ability to, to kind of use those as a proxy for, Oh, that's probably going to make me sick because it smells this way. But in practice, what, what, what we found is that the, you usually have a few days, a few additional days of viable shelf life, even after that, that some of those, some of those, those smells begin to start. So if we can actually, you know, use our technology and reduce those populations, knock them back 99%, 
uh, we can simultaneously reduce the salmonella or the E. coli that's there that is the actual food safety threat. Um, but we can also kind of turn the dial back on those, those signaling yeasts and, and bacteria that are generating those off odors. So if we're able to, to kind of knock both of those back, they do recover, but they just recover a couple of days later. Now, just to get a good visual, can you paint a picture of what your machinery or what the product looks like? I'm just trying to imagine how ground beef and fruits and vegetables and nuts and all the different products are kind of processing through your machine. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the the machine sort of changes form factor depending on what you're treating because every one of these supply chains is different. You know, you've got, you know, ground beef sort of travels in a certain way. Um, you know, fillets of fish travel on a different different me- mechanism, but but basically, one way or another, we we're you know our our machine stacks on to the extent possible. We're stacking our machine on top of uh, on top of existing processing hardware. Uh, so anywhere that it's traveling uh, in a conveyance system, we can be tubular, it can be a conveyor bed, uh, a belt, it can be any number of applications we can retrofit around. Now we've mentioned many different products. Which product or market are you starting with first? Yeah, so we've, we've really focused uh, on the, the nut application space. So um, mycotoxin reduction in peanuts and almonds, um, but uh, have a long tail of additional markets that we're, that we're moving forward with in, in parallel to that um, and are uh, yeah, currently in, uh, in the 11th hour of the, the regulatory process there and uh, should be able to, to commercialize uh, very soon. And how are the farmers receiving the product? Uh, so most of, our, most of our focus has been at the supply chain level. Uh, so we've been working with processors and um, have a couple of key partners that we've uh, that we've been uh, collaborating with there, um, including some some of the bigger CPGs that people would would be familiar with. And uh, and yeah, there's been a lot of excitement for the technology. So it would be a sort of first of a kind to be able to actually solve this problem. Um, so the industry's been very bullish on it, but uh, but you know at this point just need to. Uh, Still need to to show that we can uh, that we can hit the kind of uh, optimal scale for what they they need to process. So you've been on this journey about three years now. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? Um, well, I what I've learned about myself is I, uh, I I've learned on on the plus side that I'm able to I'm able to handle stress a lot better than I, <laughs> not, that I <laughs> not that I had been feared, but that I just indexing to 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 other people. Uh, in, in the same world and, and, and around me. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, there's a, you have to have kind of a mulish determinism, uh, de- de- uh determination at, at certain times and, um, be able to kind of weather those whiplashes between sort of ecstatic progress and unexpected crises and, you know, the seeming morning, it can feel like the wheels are coming off. And in the afternoon you, you're, you feel like you're firing on all cylinders. And that's something that, you know, friends that were entrepreneurs had always told me was the case, but um, you have to kind of actually live it, I think, to to, to understand it. Um, and and also, I think what's been interesting, kind of moving to this side of things, to moving to being a service provider, trying to sell a novel technology to 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 customers, um, is I, I think something that we we learned early on is that um, you know, pr- kind of a, a ra- an approach of radical transparency around what we know, what we don't know. Um, and kind of leaning into humility uh, seems to cut through, uh, particularly at this early stage, with with a lot of customers um, in a way that sort of, you know, the hard sell doesn't. And um, and you know, a lot of the tropes that I think from the outside on on selling that you you will, you know you think about 
um, are just totally untrue. And really, it comes down to building empathy with your customer and in turn, helping them build empathy with you and understanding what you need. Um, and that that in the long run makes for much better, stronger relationships, particularly when you're, you're doing enterprise sales like this. Do you have a favorite stress relieving technique? <laughs> um, I have taken up uh, meditation uh, for sure. Um, and, uh, uh, but I, I journal a lot. Um, I, I find it to be something that uh, is, is immensely clarifying. Um, and, uh, and the only way that I can break through the fog sometimes of, you know, what do you have to do? What has to be done next? You know, trying to, trying to, trying to trim down the to-dos to something manageable, um, is definitely the hardest part of the job. Do you have a favorite time of day to journal? Uh, whenever I can, I've got a four-year-old at home. And so it's, <laughs> I wish it was more predictable. Um, but yeah, in the morning I try to get up, do, you know, do a short workout. Um, if I can, I'll squeeze in a some meditation, um, or, or journaling then, but, uh, but otherwise, um, oftentimes it'll end up happening at night. So you have two startups. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's fast forward to 2030, about eight years from now. If one of your favorite publications, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Forbes, were to write a headline about clean crop technologies, what would you like it to read? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, headlines are tough, but uh, but no, I think you know. Um, I think what excites me about this decade uh, between now and that, uh, when I look at kind of analogs in 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 other industries, uh, you know, plasma up until now for the past several decades, it, you know, it, people have commercialized it before. It's not a new new technology by any means, but it's really been focused on um, very high value applications in these sort of uniform industrial products. So, you know, plasma is used today as an, an etching tool on things like semiconductors. Uh, you know, it's used to increase surface area on, on industrial materials. So applications where you, you know, you can afford to build a machine that has, you know, an, an, an hourly operational cost of $1,000 or $10,000 um, in very niche applications with highly predictable, repeatable substrates that you're treating. At the same time, there's been this bubbling up of, of, of academic research showing that actually there's this huge set of applications of pl for plasma in life sciences, in, in, in medical applications, in, in food and in agriculture, uh, biomass processing, um, that has kind of proven out the, the basic science around this. Um, and what's really been missing has been this, this link between the, the market applications um, that, that you've sort of proven out at the scientific level um, and, and actual deployment at scale. And when I think about, you know, looking backwards from 2030, I think this is really the decade where uh, electrochemistry writ large and, you know, plasma applications in our case in particular um, are, are poised to displace or, um, or augment um, a lot of existing solutions across the agricultural space. And I'm thinking particularly about those that are very stubbornly hard to decarbonize. So I think today, you know, you look at something like, um, like pesticides and fungicides that rely pretty heavily on, uh, on a lot of, of synthetic compounds that are petrochemical derivatives. Um, if we can, you know, get to a point where plasma is, is providing on a distributed in situ uh, alternative to that for surface decontamination on seeds, uh, for enhancing the, the performance of those seeds, um, it can actually be a, a huge part of the, uh, of a way to decarbonize production in agriculture. Similarly with pasteurization, a lot of pasteurization today has to be driven by natural gas, just based on the the, the the BTUs involved. Plasma can 
displace or significantly improve the efficiency of those systems. And so I think, you know, similarly to the advent of lithium ion batteries in 19, you know, early 90s, that today are this bedrock of decarbonizing and electrifying transportation and uh, electronics. I think we're poised today to, to, to be able to do the same thing in, in some of these hard to decarbonize parts of, of, of agriculture and the food space. And so our, my focus for, for Clean Crop is that we become the Dow Chemical of plasma companies uh, that, are, that are, you know, building core market share, displacing a lot of these hard to decarbonize solutions across the supply chain in agriculture, and then leveraging a lot of those key technological innovations to, to then be cost competitive across a much broader array of, of chemical production processes, you know, displacing thermal, you know, natural gas driven thermal catalysis in chemical production. Um, I think that the that is all possible, and it is all possible with on a technology stack that is that basically just uses electricity as uh, as the key input. You know, it's interesting you brought up plasma. I did have that as my first question on my list here. High voltage atmospheric cold plasma is something I took away from my research, which is a very very cool um, set of words. <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. It's definitely not something that um, has passed the the marketing uh, marketing <laughs> department uh, yet. So it try, sounds so like you're still a work in progress. But it sounds like you're building a comic book hero. <laughs> yeah, no, it uh, sometimes it feels that way too. So last question, and this could be professional or personal. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening. If you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, what would it be? Oh, uh, yeah, where to start? Well, I, I think, you know, something that I've that's been top of mind for us a lot um, and is for anyone out there that's working on a startup in particular, um, or even just an existing product set that is uh, that involves hardware of one kind or another. A lot of the conventional wisdom in 2018, 19, and I think just kind of still in general throughout the startup space, um, when you're starting a company like this, is to really just you know outsource, outsource, outsource. Focus all of your work, all of all of your time and effort on your core technology and anything that you can kick out to somebody else have them do it. And I, and I mean, on, on the face of that, I think it makes sense. And, and, and I'm, and I'm sure there's a lot of applications where that, that is, that works. Um, and certainly, you know, no one should be spending their precious time in a small team, really reinventing every wheel possible around them. But I think particularly in the context of the supply chain challenges, um, that we've seen over the last, uh, several months and just like sort of a cultural problem that we've run into is, hardware development and a lot of the people that do contract hardware development or, um, you know, have kind of worked in more legacy industries around it, whether it's medical device or aerospace or whatever, um, like it, it just doesn't move fast enough. Like we've, we've developed a, an ecosystem to build hardware to, to a large extent, which is really great at taking an existing product and making it 5% better repeatedly over time. And if you're in a startup, chances are you're working on commercializing something that is much more fundamental, has a lot more ambiguity, and more importantly, just needs to move through iterations much faster. And what we found is um, actually strategically insourcing some of those fabrication capabilities um, has been not only a lot cheaper once you kind of get your team up to speed on how to do it um, and get the right people around the table, but also is really critical to that rate of innovation and that rate of development. And so I would just say to anyone out there that's, that's working on hardware, don't, you know, try to look past that initial instinct to just find someone to build your machine for you, because it's going to be a lot more valuable over the long run. And I think you'll move a lot faster if you might sort of thoughtfully look at 
insourcing some of those fabrication capabilities um, at the front end and then just at least at the prototyping phase doing a lot more in-house. Well, you know the old adage, hardware is hard, right? <laughs> that it is, yep. Well, Dan, I really appreciate your time today. Wish you best of luck with Clean Crop Tech and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Raj. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.